you know, I look at faith as an aspect of health. It's not separate. And so I have found in the 22 plus years that I've actually worked and uh, dealt with primarily females, women patients, that when things are not well with their faith, that it often is translated into their physical health and well-being. You know, I am positive there is no one listening right now who has not been touched in some way by cancer, either within their own family or perhaps their extended circle of friends. Today, we're going to hear of one woman's professional and unique battle against this devastating scourge we call cancer. We'll also hear from a professional of a different kind who is doing spiritual battle with secularism. Sometimes I think in our times, we we tend to fall into this temptation of, let's take the battle to the secular world. And I think that's a pitfall. And I think all these elders and, and, and contemporary saints, I think their focus rather was on the fundamentals of what it means to live a life in Christ. More about that a little bit later in the broadcast, living a life in Christ. What does that mean? And how do you interact with the world around you while still maintaining your witness, your testimony as a believer in Christ. Again, welcome to the program. I'm Mike Trout, and our host is Father Christopher Metropolis, the president of Hellenic College and Holy Cross Orthodox School of Theology. This is an outreach of the Orthodox Christian Network. We're a nonprofit ministry, and uh, it really is important that we hear from you. You know, the summer months are always very slow when it comes to response. And so if you could just drop us a note or perhaps even consider becoming a financial partner with us, that would mean a great deal. If we're impacting your life in a positive way, let us know that. It would certainly lift us up. Well, let's jump into our first conversation. And with that, here's Father Chris. Dr. Elizabeth A. Costas-Polston is the assistant professor of the Daniel K. Inouye Graduate School of Nursing in 2015 to the present Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. She has served in the Air Force about 20 years ago. We're going to talk about some of her experiences there and working on extensive research on projects dealing with women's health. Welcome, Elizabeth. Nice to have you with us. Thank you, Father. How are you? Good, good. Let's go back a little bit to Air Force bases in Greece and Turkey where you served and Let's talk about that experience and maybe even some of the challenges you encountered. Sure, sure. So uh, that was during uh, my um, early years in the uh, United States Air Force, and I was a nurse. And uh, I was assigned, my second base was an Indralik Air Force base in Adana, Turkey. Mm. And I actually looked forward to going to Turkey because I was actually born in Izmir. Oh, and, um, and so I looked forward to going back and... Uh, getting to visit the country that I was born in. And uh, so I was assigned in the southern part of the country, um, very close to the Syrian border. And um, so I uh, was in a country that was not Christian. And definitely, I know that there are Orthodox in in Istanbul, but down where I was at, there were none. And um, so it was was, uh, uh, interesting because although I was practicing and my area of specialty is obstetrics and gynecology, which is um, where women, um, we take care of women when they're pregnant and during the time they deliver and after they have their babies also. So being in Turkey was interesting because I was an American officer nurse born in Izmir of Greek parents. So it was always interesting how that, that worked out. 
Now that uh, mixed together, yes. sure. Now you, we've seen in some of the written text about you that you are a doctor. Um, where does the doctor fit in? Did you were a nurse, obviously, but then you became a doctor afterwards? Tell us about that experience. So I actually am a nurse. Mm -hmm. I'm actually a professor. So my the type okay. doctor is a philosophy of uh, doctor philosophy in nursing research. Gotcha. Okay, very yes. good. Just so our, our listeners yes. will know what we're talking about here. Yes. All right. So let's go again. Let's stay back in that experience because obviously, I mean, one in his mirror. What what a combination! Greek parents in Turkey. Holy mackerel! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's your greatest asset in dealing with that situation at the time? Do you think? Oh well, I think my greatest uh, asset was um, that um, even though the cultures are different, there's so many similarities. And my parents always had fond memories of living in Izmir, and I always, we left when I was very young, and so I didn't remember it, but um, I had heard all the stories. And, of course, knowing the history of Greek, Greeks in Turkey, and, and, of course, what happened historically when the Greeks were um, slaughtered, massacred, etc., and the, the, the exchange of, uh, of the populations between the Greeks and the Turks and um, all that. Of course, that happened many years before my parents were in Izmir and I was born. But um, knowing all that history and, and hearing all the good memories my parents had uh, actually helped me um, and what make, made me want to go to Turkey, to be assigned in Turkey um, as an officer in the American military. And um, I picked up the Turkish language uh, I lived um, off the base because I was single, and there was no housing for uh, single officers. So American single officers lived off base, which is about 10 miles away from the base. And so I lived on the economy, and I lived with the Turkish people and Turkish families in the building I stayed. So um, I learned, and I, I became friends. I learned a lot of the language. I would go to the... Uh, Laiki, the little market uh, during you know the uh, during the week and get my vegetables etc and then I would go to the base and I would be an officer and a nurse in the uh, in the American military so uh, so I enjoyed my time there um, got to know a lot of the people and made wonderful friends um, and of course the one thing that was the most difficult for me was not having uh, a church to go to so in the military we tend to be a small community and Orthodox Christians know other Orthodox Christians, and we keep in touch with who's assigned where throughout the world. So I was very fortunate to have met uh, Father John Kondratik, who was a Russian Orthodox priest, when I went through Officer Basic in Texas. And when I was assigned to Turkey, he and his family had been reassigned from Texas to Germany, and I had kept in touch with him. And there were a few other Orthodox Christians, active duty, and their families stationed with me in Turkey. So Father John came and actually uh, would hold services every so often uh, at our base in Turkey. And, um, and so that was um, a real treat to have, um, to be able to celebrate um, uh, divine liturgy, um, you know, in a place where there really was nothing. Well, let's go for a minute. I know, obviously, you, you deal with women's issues, and that's yes. obvious. Uh, women's health is a big, big issue today in the country. People yes. talking about it constantly. Uh, can you tell us what you're working on now and what you're hoping to achieve in this area? Certainly. So the area of interest that I have um, has to do with um, cancers that are caused by a particular virus, and it's known as the human papillomavirus, and it causes over 70% of all cervical cancer and other cancers in women um, that are related to um, 
similar areas, are, uh, you know, along with the cervix. And, um, and so what I'm actually interested in is uh, my research is in genomics. And so we are looking at um, taking and examining the biology of these tumors that are caused by this virus and looking at, um, uh, through proteogenomic analyses, uh, different protein expressions and gene expressions, et cetera, that we may be able to identify um, some novel candidate biomarkers that we can use to develop therapies and diagnostic tests that may improve either, um, definitely improve the lives of these individuals with these particular type of cancers and or maybe even potentially cure these cancers. No, that's fascinating. That is really fascinating. I know that the the area of research today and medical developments is expanding. Uh, it, it's exponential. It, every time we find something else, a new door opens. And uh, we have to be blessed, those of us who are not in that realm, we have to be blessed that you people are willing to follow those things and to bring us to some good conclusion. I know sometimes it takes a long, long time to do that. Um, do you see in your practice, a relationship between one's faith and health? Because I know that comes up many times in conversations. You know, I look at, health, I look at faith as an aspect of health. Um, it's not separate. It's not one entity uh, or separate entities. It's one. And we know that the church is, is, has healing. It's healing, and it's, it's important for our sp- spiritual well-being. And so I have found in the 22-plus years that I've actually worked and uh, dealt with um, primarily females, women patients, that when things are not well with their faith, that it often is translated into their physical health and well-being. And so it's important to me always to check in with the patient to see that their um, their emotional well-being and spiritual well-being is also being addressed, not just the physical well-being or the physical um, uh, ailment they have is impacted by um, a lack of of maybe uh, faith or or what or whatever it is that they may may believe in. Um, so, in fact, to me, it is a definite important aspect of one's health and well-being, and and not separate, but all in one. Okay. And any advice for women listeners here who are listening to you now and probably can relate to many things you're saying? Oh gosh. Well. I would say that um, even when things seem to be going in a direction that uh, may not be something that we want or what we thought or we anticipated or what we expected, that um, having faith is important because um, it always seems like after the event has occurred, regardless of what it is, that in retrospect we look back and we know that we learn and, and even though we feel like we may have been in experiencing something very dark, that we know when we look back that we've never, we were not by ourselves, um, whether it be that the good Lord puts other people around us to help support us or whether he really shows us in our life or during through that situation that, that, there, that he's there with us. Thank you very much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time and your effort, and you are in our prayers. Thank you, Father Chris. Thank you. I'm sure some of you would like to do some follow-up on this topic, and if you'd like to find out more about the research that Dr. Polston is involved in, uh, we'll have a link to her uh, site, her page, at the Uniformed Services University 
on our website at myocn.net. Just click on the Listen button on the homepage, select Come Receive the Light, and this particular broadcast, and the links will be there. That's myocn.net. And now with our feature conversation, here again is Father Chris in his office at Hellenic College. Father Dragas Herescu is the principal of the Institute of Orthodox Christian Studies in Cambridge in the United Kingdom. He also teaches undergraduate and postgraduate courses offered through the Institute and the Cambridge Theological Federation. He is an affiliated lecturer of the Divinity Faculty, University of Cambridge, and is working on completing a doctoral thesis with Durham University on the secularization paradigm in the context of Eastern Orthodoxy, with particular focus on the Romanian context. Father Dragos also serves as parish priest for St. John the Evangelist Romanian Orthodox Church in Cambridge. Father Dragos, welcome to the program. Father Christopher, um, thank you for having me. It's good to talk to you. I think the first question out of the box has to be, can you tell us what you mean by secularization in the context of Eastern Orthodoxy? That has to puzzle a few people. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Well, um, to me, when I think of secularization um, or this, the secularization paradigm, I always see two dimensions to it. There is a social, cultural dimension, and there's obviously a theological or a spiritual dimension to it. And um, part of my own research, I'm, I'm trying to see how, where's the line between these two things? How can one um, think theologically about a process that is at the same time sort of a theological process? It has to, something to, to say about who we are as Christians and what we do and how we live our life and our faith, but also something that is outside of our control in a way because it's it's part of how society functions or dynamics, as it were, larger than the ones that we can control from within the ecclesial realm, um, as it were. So I don't want to sort of start a lecture on this, although it's very, <laughs> it's very um, tempting for me to do that and I can very easily slip into this, but... Um, just maybe for the clarity of those that will listen to this, um, I think in, in in the sense of a so, the social cultural dimension of secularization of, of this paradigm, um, first of all, the first thing to say is that it is sort of a, a theoretical model in a way that was postulated um, by sociolo- sociologists of religion, thinking about the relationship between modernity and how it affects religious life, religious thought, religious behavior. Um, so basically, if one were to assign a question to secularization, it would be sort of what happens to religion under conditions of modernity and accelerated change or accelerating change. Um, this is something that sort of David Martin, a, a British um, sociologist of religion, posed, and I think it's a very rel- useful way of looking at, at this. Well, that's um, where you hit it now. You hit it right on the head in that last sentence. That's, yes, exactly. That's the essence of what you're doing. Let me go to a, a different question, Father. The Romanian Orthodox Church has produced, I feel, some of the most loved scholars in recent times, Father Dimitru, Father Roman Braga, Father Cleopa, who have truly withstood the forces of a secular world. Uh, how has their memory, how has their Christian witness helped keep alive the rich tradition of Eastern Orthodoxy in Romania? Thank you for this question. Well, I think... F- First of all, um, before really addressing it directly, I would want to say that that um, there there are much loved elders um, throughout the sort of different Orthodox traditions or, or churches or um, 
peoples, if if you want to um, use that that word. Um, and I think they're they're all extraordinary contextual in the in their mission and their witness. And I think that this is clearly, and we we have to affirm this. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our times in 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 in, in the twentieth century and. Um, I certainly believe that it, we will have elders that we will talk about in the 21st century, mm-hmm. and for for how many centuries God would will, will allow us to to exist on on this planet. Mm-hmm. But um, coming back to your question, um, well, I think all of these people that you've um, mentioned in from from to the Romanian Orthodox Church, all of them um, are figures that lived and practiced the faith during communism, during a time of oppression, um, in a way during a time of uh, enforced secularization, systematic secularization, and and, um, kind of an open war against the church and religion. Um, So their mission was very specific. But what I think makes them stand out in the way that they managed to to resist, um, in a way, and and establish themselves as as models, as living icons um, for, for us, is first of all that they, their witness was of a personal relation with our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you witness to a personal relation, to a personal encounter, that is something that no one can talk you out of. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we tend to associate so much faith and religion and religiosity with um, sort of templates, uh, with a particular ethnic background, sometimes with a particular um, set of principles. Sometimes orthodoxy tends to fall in some occasions into kind of uh, this kind of Western, without trying to be polemic or um, pointing fingers, but uh, this kind of way of understanding who we are um, by some 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 form of list of, of things that identify us. But in, in the case of these um, fathers, I think it was really about a personal connection and relationship with, with Jesus Christ. Secondly, I think it has to do with education um, and with a sense of familiarity with the faith, with the story of of, of of Jesus in a way with the story of our of our faith and of our tradition and of our church as a living body of Christ. Uh, Father Dimitris Stanislaev, for example, I mean, he is a a, a good example of 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 an erudite Christi- Christian. You know, I always think of him in relation to the early fathers of the church. Um, whenever we we have these theologians, I immediately think of Saint Basil and Saint Gregory and Saint John uh, Chrysostomus, who were who were educated theologians and i think that's important you need to have meat to the bones as it were mm-hmm. and yep. sort yep. of the last thing to say i'm sorry because i think it's important in our context is why they did succeed i think was that they did not purposefully um, go on a crusade against the secular world sometimes i think in our in our times we we tend to to again to fall into this temptation of Let's take the battle to <laughs> to 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 the uh-huh. secular world, sure. and I think that's that's um, that's a pitfall. Uh, um, and I think what they did, and I think all these elders and 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 contemporary saints, I think their focus rather was on the fundamentals of what it means to live a life in Christ, um, in in one's context, whether you're in Greece, in Romania, in Russia, in in the States, in the UK, in uh-huh. France, it doesn't matter. Yeah, so, because many times the world uh, we can be speaking what we feel is the truth, uh, but the world is not ready to hear it. And they can more relate to us living our faith rather than us trying to teach them what we feel is right. It, it's a difficult task, and you're doing theological education now, of course, as the um, 
as the principal of the Institute of Orthodox Christian Studies in Cambridge. Uh, let's change a little bit and go to what you're doing in the area of distance learning courses. What can you tell us about it? Well, um, I think it's important to try and, and be relevant to the times and, and make the faith available to people with the means, with the technological means, with the communication means that are very, um, very available, readily available. So the Institute is, I think, in a way pioneered, at least in the UK, I would say, courses uh, in theology by distance learning. We have a, a long-standing course now. We have a certificate and a diploma by distance learning, courses that are um, accredited by the Institute. They're our own courses. We wanted to create um, a course that is at a sort of an undergraduate level, introductory, a sort of first-year BA, bachelor degree in theology, but um, a little bit special with, in the sense that it has the structure and the quality of a, almost a university course like that, but it's catechetical in its ethos and in its approach. It wants people to learn the fundamentals of the faith and in a way that is useful, not just academically, but also in their daily life. And it truly is, I think, the fundamentals of the faith uh, that for many of us, we, we're trying to be so theological and so, you know, we, we had courses in <laughs> systematic theology, 101, 201, 301, 501, you know, yes. and, and we're talking at the 501 level, and everyone really just wants to be at the 101 level and actually learn <laughs> what it means to be an Orthodox Christian. Um, let's, let's ask you this question. The United Kingdom. I've never visited the United Kingdom, and I hope someday to come there and, and come to Cambridge and to follow what you're doing. But can you tell us a little bit about the early beginnings of the Eastern Orthodox Church in the United Kingdom? Because I think that would be of interest to our listeners. Yes, well, um, I really want to just to throw in a quote from, um, from Tertullian, one of these early church historians and fathers and apologetic writers, he writes around the year 200 in his um, Adversus Judeos, he says that the name of Christ now reigns in all parts of Spain, um, in France, in, among the Gauls, in the regions of the Britons, beyond Roman sway, but subjected to Christ. So already in the around the year 200, so second, third century, um, people have an awareness that there is Christianity in Britain, um, largely thanks to the Romans um, conquering this um, the, the, most of its, its territory. And I think it's exciting to think that the history of the Orthodox Church, in a way to put it like that, in the UK is connected to these very early roots. You have people um, like um, St. Um, Alban, uh, who died as a martyr in 304 during the persecution of Emperor Diocletian in, in here, not, not far from sort of Cambridge, in a place we know now um, as St. Alban's. They named the city later after him. Uh, he's an example of Christian martyrdom, you know, in on these isles. And he's one, is one of the first in a long line of people, of ascetics and monks and missionaries that have continued, as it were, to, to live as Christians and to spread Christianity in, 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 in the British Isles. Um, it's interesting to think that the Emperor Constantine was proclaimed emperor here in the UK at York in 306. Mm. So the, the, the figure that, that sort of brought Christianity out from the um, sh shadows, from, from being an illegal uh, religion, um, was, was became emperor here in the UK. And, and a lot of the um, homegrown um, Orthodox um, English people are very proud of this thing. Um, but not to, to really go into a historic uh, digression, 
if we're thinking of a more institutional uh, church in the UK here, um, I think we really need to look at um, places in the or dates in the um, 16th, 17th century where you start mm-hmm. to, to have the first kind of Greek um, established churches, uh, particularly in London. Um, for example, the Archdiocese of Thyatira in Great Britain was established sometime in the around the 1670s here in the UK. And um, the first Greek church was built in London in, in 1850 mm-hmm. in the city. So, so there is a, a, a long-standing history of this. But now, I think the Orthodoxy in the UK is one of the most vibrant expressions of Christianity anywhere on the planet. And I'm proud, in a way, to say that the Institute of Orthodox Christian Studies is part of this long-standing history of, of Orthodox presence in the UK. We were established um, 20 years ago, almost. A, a great development for, for the Orthodox in this country was the um, establishment of this pan-Orthodox assembly of, of bishops uh, yes. with churches in the British Isles, which was founded in, in, in two, 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a synod proper, but it is it is um, the best thing that we have now in terms of bringing all these different jurisdictions, and that is an ongoing, in a way, I don't know, we, we can call it a problem, but certainly a, a, a difficulty in a way. But at least we have the Orthodox coming together and talking and sitting at the same table and looking, you know, um, synoptically, in mm-hmm. a way, at, sure. at, at the reality of our of shared life here. Of course. Um, I, I have to say, and this is the last really last thing about um, the Orthodox in the UK, is that there is this wonderful, wonderful um, monastery of St. John the Baptist um, in Essex, which was founded by um, Elder Sofroni um, in um, sort of 1959, 1960s. Um, and it's one of the most beautiful expressions of orthodoxy um, in the UK, probably um, in the West, um, Western Europe at least. Um, it's so international. It's it's so welcoming. It's, it 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 does wonderful mission. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's very good. Finally, Father, can you tell us about the summer conference you're having in August, so people can yeah. learn about it? Um, I don't think we have a summer conference in August this year. I must okay. I must say, uh, Father Christopher, but. There's another, um, I think, exciting event that the Institute is involved in at the beginning of September here in Cambridge. Um, it's a consultation of Orthodox and Evangelical theological educators, um, which will take place here in Cambridge. Um, it's called the Lausanne Orthodox Initiative. Um, and we'll have participants from Evangelical and, and Orthodox communities talking about um, the challenges and opportunities of theological education today. Um, and Cambridge was chosen for this and the Institute was, was asked to be a part of this event because of the ecumenical context here in Cambridge uh, with the university, with the Cambridge Theological Federation. So that is something that I really look forward to because um, as we we're saying at the beginning, I think education is important for our faith in, in our day and age and uh, is part of our witness um, for Christ. Thank you, Father. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much um, for your questions and for this time uh, with you, Father Christopher. Um, God bless the work uh, that you do, and God bless all our listeners. Thank you. Well, there is another reason to go to our website at myocn.net to get the uh, follow-up information on that Luzon Orthodox Initiative Conference coming up in September. Again, the website is myocn.net, and uh, we'll have a link to whatever information we're able to gather 
on the conference when you go to this particular broadcast. This is a weekly outreach of the Orthodox Christian Network. Pray for us, please. And uh, remember our financial needs. Let us know that you listen. If you'd like to become a financial partner, there is a donate button on the homepage on that website and a number of ways in which you can join with us. We'll be back next time with another broadcast uh, dealing with subjects of great importance through the lens of the Orthodox Christian faith. In the meantime, until we meet again, remember to always have faith in what you listen to.